regular two services, but our Midtown campus is joining us, and Pastor Lance will be preaching. If you're new, you need to know we're, we're one church, but two campuses, two locations, and we do that because of mission and because of, of reaching our neighborhoods, and our vision is to really have a, a network of campuses across Tallahassee one day. But we also think it's important in times like next weekend to grab those, those opportunities to be one church. And so we're all going to be here worshiping together, 9 and 11. The Midtown Barbarian Hordes will descend upon us and drink our coffee. But we want them to be here nonetheless. You know, Josh mentioned that Joe was back in town. And, and seriously, Joe left the country, and she came back this week, and there's like a new country. Have you noticed that? I mean, we, it was a big week in terms of, of nine Supreme Court justices issuing some monumental rulings. And a lot of times when, when these sort of seismic cultural shifts happen, we, we freak out or we panic or we get indignant and angry. You know, we, we might even begin to question, God, what are you doing? God, have you, have you left your posts? Don't you know there's like a, a, a culture that's crumbling around here? Are, are your purposes still in play? Has, has, has your word, you know, lost its power and, and a lot of times what we just need to remember as Christians is that the most important thing we can do is just come here and worship. That we worship a God who's not at all surprised by what's happening. He's sitting here, he's with us here, but he's in heaven on his throne right now, ruling and governing sovereignly, and he has got this. And so, so we, we are here, part of what we do in worship is we remind each other. We spur each other on to, rem- to remember who God is and, and who we are. And by God's providence, we're going to be talking about his sovereignty today. This was planned, um, shall I say it, before the foundations of the world. Anyway, so Romans 9, you can, you can open your Bibles there. About two, three months ago, the elders propose something bold and audacious. And whenever there's something bold and audacious, we just blame the elders, okay? So I kind of act like they're a distant figure. No, we, we propose as a leadership that we consider adopting prayerfully a new statement of faith as a church family. Uh, for the last 25 years, we've been a part of the Evangelical Free Church and uh, abiding by that statement of faith. But we've recognized over time that while that's a good statement of faith, it's not as robust and distinctive as we would like it to be or think it needs to be in several critical areas like God's sovereignty, like the role of men and women, like leadership, like the things that connect us to other churches. And so we have proposed that we as a church family adopt the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith. It came from the, the pen of scribes like John Piper and Tim Keller and Don Carson and many others, utilized by hundreds of organizations, churches, and ministries. But this is something ultimately that has to be approved by the members of Four Oaks Church. So we are an elder-governed church, but ultimately changing the bylaws, which is something that, that is done on the congregational level, has to be approved by our members. And so we thought it would be good before that vote. We've been spending the last few months doing pastor classes and meetings and engagements. And and, but, but kind of the, the, tip of the, seer, the tip of the spear, so to speak, is our summer um, sermon series where we are preaching through 
all 13 articles of the Gospel Coalition Statement of Faith to allow us a chance to engage together, pray together, talk together. I've been emailing with many of you, meeting with you, um, um, doing Q&A informally and formally. And by the way, the pastor classes that we did on these, which were more informal and interactive, those are available on the website at fouroakschurch.com. But we're taking an article a week. And so we're on Article 5 this morning, um, God's sovereignty in election. And so the pastors had a little game of one potato, two potato, and I, my little potato was left. Okay, so I've got, I've got this one. And, and it bears reminding, as we're getting ready to read Article 5, that this is nothing new. This is no new theological direction. For the last 15 years, if you've been with us, we are in the same place that we've always been as a leadership in terms of our theology and our distinctives. What's different now, though, is that we believe that they're, instead of th- these doctrinal commitments being implicit, they need to be explicit, confessionally. We think that there is health in that. There is theological protection. There are guardrails. And, and we understand, as you're kind of wrapping your mind around all this, you may have questions like, well, well Pastor Paul, what if, I, what if I'm unclear about some of these things, or, or I even disagree, or I'm, I'm still wrestling through these things, or these are, you know, I have questions, can I still be a member? The answer is absolutely not, Lee. No, it's... it's, it's an opportunity to do what we've always done in this area, okay? To extend grace to one another and to work through these things together. It's like in a, like in a family. Parents, your children are probably not always going to agree with every single belief and conviction that you have. Our kids do, but yours probably don't. And, and, so, and so because of that, how do you work through that as a family? Does it, does it necessarily divide you as a family? No. But what we are saying as a membership when we adopt a statement of faith is that this is our marker. This, is, this, the, this defines our commitments as a leadership and as a family. And we agree to support them, to recognize them, to unify around them, to submit to them, understanding we're all going to be in different places as we wrestle through these things. And even in disagreement, and that's not inherently unhealthy, it's not, it's not bad. But we think that the time is now, and as we see from the cultural shifts that are happening all around us, the church better be quick to define itself biblically before someone else defines ourself for us. So the plan of God is Article 5. Let's read it and pray and we'll dive into it. We believe that from all eternity, God determined in grace to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation, and to this end foreknew them and chose them. We believe that God justifies and sanctifies those who by grace have faith in Jesus, and that he will one day glorify them, all to the praise of his glorious grace. In love, God commands and implores all people to repent and believe, having set his saving love on those he has chosen, and having ordained Christ to be their Redeemer. Lord Jesus, we need your help this morning. Um, These are glorious truths. Every every word, every jot and tittle of your word is true and right and profitable. But Lord, in our sinful hearts, our frail hearts, our weak hearts, we can back away from things like this. 
But Lord, show us that there is life in these words. There is life in your word. There is life in your purposes. And so we need ears to hear this morning. We need eyes to see. So Lord, by your grace, would you do it? Would you do it for our, for, for our souls? But Lord, do it for your glory. Because we believe it honors you when your people recognize and worship you, not for who we want you to be, but for who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Question, what do you do when you come across a real sticky wicket or problem or hard issue in your life? I was talking to a couple this week, wrestling through some financial issues in their family and marriage, and and they indicated, you know, Pastor Paul, we do typically one of two things when we come to these hard issues in our marriage. One, we'll either kind of stick our fingers in our ears, okay, and just act like it's not happening and hope somebody pays the visa that month, okay? Like if, it, if we just ignore it, it's, it's like it's not even there. We either do that or we just, or the gloves come off, okay? We climb into the octagon and we just like go, go for it, okay? And we just pound each other. And, and my fear and concern is that oftentimes when we come to issues like these, okay, election, predestination, sovereignty, choice, we can vacillate between one of those two extremes. One, we can just decide, we, we can just decide we're going to ignore this and run from it. And you may say, Pastor Paul, this stuff is too hard. It's too confusing. It's divisive. I don't want to go there. There's too much disagreement. Why is this even in the statement of faith? Some of you might be angry already this morning, and we haven't even said anything worthy of anger, but we will uh, very shortly. Or, or you may just be fearful. Like, I, I believe this, but I, I'm the person in my fellowship group, does, you know, whatever. Now, now, here's the problem with that sort of approach of just like, let's don't go there. We have to recognize that this theme of God's sovereign choice is not a secondary theme in the scriptures. It is not a corollary theme. It is a dominant theme from start to finish. So when all the way from Seth to Noah to pagan Abraham to David the shepherd, in fact, we know that God not only just chose individuals, he chose what? A nation, okay? Think about that, a whole nation. We go into the New Testament. Before John the Baptist was born, he's the man who's going to proclaim the coming of Christ. The disciples, Paul himself, we just spent a whole year in the book of Acts. Is that not Paul's testimony, God's sovereign grace in choosing him? Just a smattering of verses. Okay? And these are to emphasize this theme is everywhere. Deuteronomy 7.7, in God's addressing Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For in fact, you were what? The fewest of all the people. John 15, 16, Jesus makes this pretty clear. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. In Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Brooks, I think we can agree on this. 
these are words in God's holy scriptures. And they mean something. Okay? Re- regardless of what you think, think they mean, or I think they mean, we certainly cannot ignore them. In fact, I would maintain that every one of us in here has certain notions about what those words mean already. The question is, is it going to conform to what God's testimony is about these words? But we know this, it is not an option not to believe something about them. They are too prominent, they are too right there in our face for us to walk away from them. That's the first error. Second error is that we would take this doctrine and debate it and use it as sort of a theological punching bag. You know, there is, there is I'm going to hate on my own tribe for a minute. You know, there's nothing more annoying than a converted Calvinist, okay? There is nothing more annoying than that guy, okay? Blogging in his basement, reading books, sending his pastor 12-page emails, trolling, going into his, his fellowship group and rolling in the, the, the election grenade. Okay, those people, let's just be honest, are nauseating. I know, I've been there, I was that guy, okay? I'm still kind of that guy every now and then. Okay, no, hopefully not. Because it can run the other way, too. I have a pastor friend in town, you all would recognize his name. We share the same doctrinal convictions about these things. And he was in, now the, the, the irony is so rich, so, so please join me in, in this delicacy just for a second. So he was in Chick-fil-A, which is the, the, the Christendom of fast food, right? Okay, so he's in Chick-fil-A, and, and there's another pastor there who obviously, shall we say, doesn't appreciate my friend's doctrinal convictions. And, and, and as he's walking out the door, kind of, now this is juicy bit number two, angrily yells out at him, hey, um, you should try reading John 3.16 sometime. Okay, so just think about the, the irony of this whole thing, okay? And my friend, I'm sure, is like, hmm, what a novelty. I've never heard of that verse. Tell me about this. Both of these guys, not the scriptural approach. When God's sovereignty and election are discussed in the Bible, it's never in the debate hall. It's never in the ivory tower, It's always interwoven into the very fabric of people's lives to give them hope and assurance and confidence in God's purposes. And so there's a lot of texts we could go for this, but but the reason we're going to Romans 9, besides the fact that it's a light, fluffy, easy, non-controversial chapter, um, is that this is in fact what Paul's addressing. He, he, Paul does not decide out of the thin air, hmm, what shall I write on today? I got it. I'm going to write on election. No, no, no. He's addressing a theological but mainly pastoral problem that's, that's percolating in the life of the first century Christians. And, and, and here, here is what's going on. Because it is 25 years after the ascension of Christ and as we just learned in the book of Acts, the gospel has literally transformed the, the known civilized world. And it is, it's 25 years later, the church is growing, but yet there's sort of this problem or nagging issue, and it's simply this. You know, Paul, we look around, and you're a Jew, and Jesus, our Messiah, was a Jew. And the 12 original disciples were Jews, but we're looking around the church, and guess who we ain't seeing? Jews, okay? 
It's predominantly, overwhelmingly Gentiles. And people were naturally asking questions. And by the way, it's the same kind of questions you and I ask every day. Paul, has God's word failed? Has, Paul, has God's purposes in salvation been thwarted? Paul, is, has God left his post? I would submit to you that behind every um, personal uh, point of crisis in our life where we are questioning something, whether it's children or whether it's, or whether it's our marriage or finances or job or, or illness, that underneath it is this driving question, God, are you good and are you faithful to do what you've promised to do? That is the subtext, I believe, behind so much of what we wrestle with. We, we don't have... We, we don't have issue problems. Ultimately, we have God problems. We are wrestling with God. And it is into this context that Paul speaks these words. And so let's look at them. We're going to work through Romans 9 in, in little chunks. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You know, a lot of you know exactly where Paul is living because you, in fact, are living it. For Paul, it was his Jewish brothers who had all the insider advantages. They had all the blessings. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had the prophets. But, but stunningly, they have rejected their own Messiah. They have walked away. And people are saying, Paul, has the word of God failed? You know, I know that there are a number of you who have been like the widow in the Gospels coming before the Lord about a specific thing, not for days and not for months and not even just for years, some of you for decades. Lost children, prodigal family members, and you are faithful time after time, week after week to, to bring them for prayer. A lot of them are just like the Jews here. They, they had all the insider advantages. They grew up in the church. They grew up in a Christian home. They had a youth group. They had a faithful preacher and teacher in their life. You poured yourself into them. And then seemingly, nada. And we are tempted, are we not, just like people in the New Testament church in the first century to say, God, are your purposes being thwarted here? God, has indeed your word failed? That's the question. That's the question not just for then, but for now. And Paul, in, interestingly, uses an, a kind of an argumentative device here where he anticipates people's objections or questions, and he answers them, and that's what he does in verse 6. So let's keep reading. We're going to kind of hover above the text here and then just kind of dive in strategically. And Paul says this very clearly, but... Listen to this, four oaks. It's not as though the word of God has failed. 
Not at all. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, now listen to this, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Is that on your little daily precious moments uh, calendar? Okay, probably not. Because if you ever had a time when you were powerless to avert a disaster, and you knew that unless someone came in to save the day, that you were done. Now, I'm not a Facebooker because I know I would be addicted to it. And so Susan posts for the two of us. And so, some of you are familiar with this because you saw it on Facebook. You knew about it before I did, actually. No, 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 you didn't. All, but almost. So, so we're, we're at the beach a couple weeks ago. And our kids love, love the water. They love the ocean. And our typical process at the beach is basically this. Our kids run like maniacs into the water. I put my chair by the, by the water with a book, and I totally zone out, okay? And so we'll, 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 they're probably fine, babe. No big deal. We'll find them in two or three hours. We'll see how things are going. This is not Susan's MO at the beach, okay? So, so she's pacing up and down the water, okay? And she's, she's got her binoculars on, looking three feet away. Where are they? Checking on the kids. And guys, let me tell you, I'm so glad she did this day because it was the red flag that was up and it was a strong riptide, and some woman had actually come up and said, are those your kids that I see like half a mile out in the, you know, that, there's a real strong riptide today. You might want to be careful there. And I'm like, mm-hmm, yep, okay. So I just kept on reading. But Susan floats out, and it had just happened in a, in a split second. It took Jack, and, and I look up, and before I even know it, there is this, there's this man who's kind of got him and drag, dragging Jack in. And I... He said he's from Nashville. I think he was the guardian angel. Whatever the case was, was he, he totally saved his life. And do and you know what, what that makes you feel like as a dad? Okay? You, just, you, you feel shame and you feel powerless and realizing, you know what? If this guy hadn't shown up, okay, I would, we would have been in real trouble. Now, Four Oaks, I, I submit to you that's the theological lesson that Paul is pointing to here, okay? And, and here, here, I think, is his central point in this section. And, and this is so important to remember, because this is going to hit you right where you are. And this is the greatest truth and the hardest truth all at the same time, and here it is. If everything ultimately hinges on man and his choices, all is lost. All is lost. God's word will fail every time. If you weren't, if, if it was dependent on you and me. However, if everything ultimately hinges on God 
and his sovereign will and grace. No, no. God's word has not failed a bit. And that's, that's the most fundamental truth that we have to wrestle with when we are walking through God's mysterious purposes and plans in our life. And, and Paul sums it up there in verse 11 when he says this. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, now listen to this, not because of works, in other words, not because of your striving, not because of your running, but because of him who calls. And so Paul gives us two examples, two sets of brothers. We don't have time to talk about both of them, but let me talk about Esau and Jacob in a minute. These are, these are two boys who, had, who were twins, same mother, same father, same ethnicity, no distinctions between the two. And, and, and before they were born, God said, the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And by the way, those are metaphors, love and hate, for Jacob I have chosen. Esau I have passed over. Jacob I have chosen. Esau I have passed over. Now, how you viscerally in your heart and gut respond to that okay and to respond to Paul will show us and show you much about the central role or not that God plays in your heart and mind i want you to think for a minute about Jacob and Esau who these guys were Esau was as lost as he could be. In fact, he went on to father the nation of what? Edom, who was a crassless, uh, vile, despicable nation of people who opposed God and his purposes at every turn. But I also want you to think about Jacob. Jacob the name literally means what? Deceiver, okay? Um, ladies, this is not the kind of guy you want to bring home, okay? The, 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 he, he is not that guy, okay? He swindles his brother out of his birthright. He cheats his brother out of his blessing. He goes and raises Cain at his, at his father-in-law's house, steals out in the dead of night, um, he is a cheat, liar, and deceiver at every turn. Now, let me ask you a question. Which truth offends you more this morning? Okay, think about this. Because intuitively, most of us think what? Well, that's not fair. <laughs> okay, God, what's up with that? Choosing Jacob and not Esau, which shows us the bent of our human heart, because I want to ask you this, Horokes, which offends you more and offends me more, that God justly condemns a sinful Esau or that God unjustly pardons a sinful Jacob? Because the question is not why Jacob or why not, I'm sorry, the question is not why Esau, 
Why not Esau, God? The question is, why Jacob? Why Jacob? These two men represent two nations, Edom and Israel, both who go on to desert their God. In fact, when, when, when he's quoting from Malachi 1 here, where Israel has been deported to Babylon for their disobedience and their idolatry. The most amazing thing is not that God passed over Jacob. The most amazing thing was that Jacob was chosen. Do you see that, Four Oaks? That's what's amazing. And R.C. Sproul asked this question. Anytime we're talking about something controversial, just bring in R.C. Sproul and think, think about what he says, okay? The question R.C. Sproul says is, why, the question is not, why is everyone not saved? The question is, why are you still breathing? Because Four Oaks, whether we think it's politically correct or not, all of us deserve death. All of us are rebels against a holy God. And the most astounding thing about this passage, not that God passed over Esau, the most astounding thing about this passage is that God reached down and saved a despicable Jacob. Do you recognize that? Do you recognize that that's your testimony? Do you recognize that that's my testimony? We'll circle back around to it. Paul anticipates the objection. He knows it. And here's what he says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice, verse 14, on God's part? Is that, not, is that not our human question? That doesn't, what do we say? God, you don't seem good. God, you don't seem righteous. God, why him and not another? And Paul says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now listen to this. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, I have to admit, on the surface, Paul's answer to this question just seems totally unsatisfactory. What about, do, does anybody else have, or is it, is it just me, okay? It's like, okay, Paul, okay, help me with this, Paul. Um, this doesn't seem fair, okay? What, help, help, help me, Paul. What is your response to that? And he says, well, no, God, God is not unjust because, you know, he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Which, let's be honest, that does not seem like an answer, does it? Okay, Parents, you, but you understand this, right? Growing up as a kid, you had a request for your parents. And I'm looking at all the, all the kids that are represented here. Kids here, students here. What is, what is the one thing you, you, you hate for your parents most to say to you when you have a request? Okay. Okay, yeah, may I go outside, may I play media, may I go down the street, may I have a sleepover, may I, I mean, whatever, okay, the list is endless, okay? And, and your parents say no, 
And what do you say? Why? Oh, yes. Heathen, okay? No. And your parents magically say what? Because I said so. Oh, that. Okay, right? It kind of sounds like that's what Paul's saying. I'll tell you why God's not unjust. Because he does what he wants to. There. Now, I, we don't have time to unpack all this, okay, where this comes from in Exodus and what he's saying. But I think here's the essence of what Paul means here. You see, when I'm a parent, there's, there can be a bad way to say, I told you so, because I'm lazy, I don't want to engage. That, okay, there's a bad, re- parents, that can be bad. But other times, it can be good. And, he, and here's what I mean. Sometimes... I know what's best for our children, but I don't necessarily have time to explain it. Nor do they always have the capacity to understand it. Okay? A lot of times, the essence of what it means to be a parent is I have to make independent, arbitrary decisions on the behalf of our family, and Susan does too, and we are really telling our kids, you are going to have to trust us. Because the essence of what it means to be a parent is that we have to be able to say yes or no. Okay, that's that's the essence, oftentimes, of what it means to be a parent. And do you see the parallel? Paul is saying the essence of what it means to be God. And this is so hard for us. I think I think our struggles with election and predestination. Are, are, can be boiled down to, right, to this right here. The essence of what it means to be God for us is that he is free to do what he wants to do. He is independent of his creatures. God's freedom to do what he wants, to uphold the glory of his name, I would maintain that is the essence of what it means to be God. The freedom to act independently and autonomously, and guess what, without consulting us about what he should do. And that's why I think Paul says in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And that truth, depending on where you are, will either be noxious or it will be precious. Because for me it's precious, and I'll tell you why. In the summer of, of 1988, I was driving around in my 1982 Nissan Sentra, listening on the radio, and I, I double-checked the top 40 for that year to make sure I wasn't lying, okay? Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson, Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses, okay? And in something by Aerosmith, okay? Anyway, so, so I'm driving around, and, and life is really great, from my limited perspective. I had been hired for this awesome summer job. I was taking the summer off from University of Tennessee after my freshman year. I had a girlfriend. I was making free, independent, autonomous, in my mind, choices. But make no mistake, I was running from God as fast as I could. I was intent on doing my thing, not a flicker of spiritual interest at this point in my life. And part of, part of being back in Chattanooga was I got to be 
free from all the campus crusaders who had been thumping me with their Bibles all semester, right? Okay, so with their four spiritual laws and their booklets and they're sharing their faith with me and I've got my fingers in my ears and I don't want to hear any of it. But in the space of 24 hours, two phone calls changed my life. And I would venture to say, for everyone in here who's a believer, there's something like this in your testimony. So the first call was, I'm sorry you don't have that job, okay? The second call was, hey, I've got a job for you at this little podunk camp up in the mountains of East Tennessee that paid like about 50 cents a day, okay, to be our hired slave. Can you come do that? It's going to be an awesome, great summer job. I guess, I guess, to get there only to find that the campus crusaders had beaten me there. And so I had to spend all summer with these people. And you know what? God reached down miraculously, sovereignly, gloriously, and saved me. This truth brings great comfort for me because I know if it was up to Paul Gilbert's human will or exertion, (laughs) I mean, think about this. Because in your testimony, is it all sweetness and light? Is Is it a matter of, you know, the stars were perfectly aligned for you and you independently, autonomously figured out that Jesus was awesome and that he was your savior? And I would venture to say no. There was some point in your life where God in his sovereign grace and mercy reached down into your life. And he's doing it right now. Proverbs 21.1 says this. The king's heart, parents, just think about that hard person, that hard child you're praying for. Just think about that prodigal family member. Think about that difficult situation. Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. Just like Jack when he was three or four in the bathtub with his little toy boats, just positioning them around to go where he wants them to go. That's the sovereign God who controls and influences and changes the hearts of people like Jacob who never, ever would have chosen God. I know this raises so many questions for you that we cannot answer this morning. If you want to dig deeper into all this, the justification of God by John Piper is is a weighty but excellent exegetical treatment of this chapter. But just on a practical level, when you think about how my will coincides with God's will, we have a will, and it needs to embrace Christ's. But the answer, but the question is, how does it embrace Christ? Look at 2 Corinthians 8. This is a great little passage. Paul says, but thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. Now, that passage will just mess with your mind. Okay, think about it for a minute. Titus is coming to you, Paul said, to serve you. He wants to do it. He's doing it of his own free accord. Why is he going in the first place? Well, because God put it in his heart. Okay? Guys, that's salvation. That is salvation. If God doesn't put it in your heart, you don't want it. Pastor Dave's message last week about the depravity of man and what we will choose whenever we're given a chance, apart from the Spirit of God, is important. Final objection, and we're done. And this may be you this morning asking this question. 
Pastor Paul, if God's will is decisive, then, then, then what are we doing? How does he hold me responsible? And Paul knew that question, and look what he says, Romans 9, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Okay, that's the question. Why does, why does he still, for who can resist his will? And here's Paul comes the closest in all the scripture that we get to unfolding just a little bit of the curtain from the divine sovereign purposes of God. And here's what he says. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable and one for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? You know, Paul goes all Barney Fife theology, right? What does he say? Nip it. That's, that's, I mean, that's, essentially that's what he says. God knows what he's doing. He's got this. Don't worry about him, you worry about you. Make your calling and election sure. Okay? Not incompatible. He, we are lumps of clay. And the essence of what it means to be human is that we allow God to be God for us, not that we shape God to the way we think he should be. I, I think one of the fundamental needs of our postmodern culture in the church is to stop saying stupid things like, I could never worship a God like that. Or in, in fill in the blank for whatever that is. I can never worship a God that condemns this activity. I can never worship a God that works this way. I can never worship a God that works that way. What are we saying when we say that? I know better than God what God should be like. And I'm going to conform my theology to my life to those things. Guys, four oaks, say, let me say this. Human opinions don't matter a whit when it comes to defining who God is. We have a desperate need in our lives to let the Bible speak for itself. Let me close with this. There's a lot of misconceptions that people have about this, and this article anticipates one of them. Let me read that last sentence in the article, Article 5. It says, In love, God commands and implores all people to repent and believe, having set his saving love on those he has chosen and having ordained Christ to be their redeemer. You may say, Pastor Paul, how can both of these be true? How can God sovereignly choose but still offer the gospel to everyone? How can he tell me to pray? How can he tell me to evangelize? And we simply have to say this, Four Oaks, don't try to be more clever than God, okay? Just because you and I can't, in our finite minds, put those things together doesn't mean they're not true. Because Paul, after giving us this discourse on the absolute sovereignty of God, he says just a few verses later, chapter 10, verse 1, what does he say? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they be saved. Isn't that interesting? Paul, I would think if you thought God was sovereign, you wouldn't pray. No, 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 no. I don't pray despite God's sovereignty. I pray because of it that he is capable of doing anything he so pleases. 
He goes on verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul, it would seem to me, if you believe in God's sovereignty, you would stop sharing your faith because God's going to take care of this. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. Because prayer and evangelism are God's means of accomplishing his sovereign work. Folks, quit. Let's, let's put the philosophical categories aside. Let's tr- stop trying to fit these things into the boxes so it all makes sense and simply say, both of these things are true. As a parent, you better be praying and you better be sharing and you better be pouring in and you better be discipling because those are the very things God uses to change hearts. But just know, just like Titus, when he does, Titus served because God put it in his heart to do so. Folks, let's, my prayer for us this season is that we would see these truths not as noxious, but as precious, because it's on them that we build our lives and that we can make sense of the question, has the word of God failed in our country, in your life, in your marriage with your kids? And Paul's answer is absolutely not. Let's trust him. Let's pray.